1: Hey guys, welcome to the Dream Bigger podcast. If you're new, I'm so happy you've decided to tune in. And if you're a regular listener, welcome back. I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Icing and Glitter, which is a website, Instagram page, and YouTube channel. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to remind you to please leave the show a review if you want me to send you a goodie bag full of beauty products. Yep, I'm sending a beauty goodie bag to everyone that subscribes to and reviews the Dream Bigger podcast. Just send me a screenshot to sifa.h91 at gmail.com and I'll send it right to your door. Okay, so let's dive into today's interview. Dr. Natalie Mulligan is a naturopathic doctor and one of my closest friends. This is actually the second time I'm having her on the podcast. The last time she came on, we chatted about all things naturopathy, from supplements to hormones, and you can go back and listen to that. It's episode 16. On today's show, we discuss eating disorders, which is what she specializes in. Eating disorders are such a touchy subject and I'm sure a lot of you either know someone who suffers from one or at some point have dealt with it on a personal level. Whatever it may well be, I think today's episode is a great one to listen to because we discuss everything from misconceptions around eating disorders to how to approach them and what the role of a naturopathic doctor is when treating one. So without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Natalie Mulligan to the show. All right, Natalie, so go ahead and introduce yourself to the people who didn't listen to our last episode together.
0: I am Dr. Natalie Mulligan. I'm a naturopathic doctor and I specialize in eating disorder treatment.
1: Okay, so what got you interested in eating disorders to begin with?
0: Um, It was interesting. So one is that I grew up dancing competitively and the competitive dance environment kind of it doesn't breed eating disorders, but it welcomes them and or endorses their, their behavior. So mm-hmm. I had a lot of personal experience with eating disorders. Um, and then professionally, once I was in school, I accidentally kind of stumbled into mental health. I was working under a really amazing naturopath. His name is Dr. Presby. Mm-hmm. And under his care, I saw lots of eating disorder patients. And I don't know, once I started working with them, I felt like I couldn't really go in a different direction. Mm-hmm. So... I I kind of fell into it, and then when I graduated, there was an opening at a private eating disorder treatment center in Toronto, and I worked there, and
1: here I am. Here you are. Um, So when you, like when, for example, you fell into the um, eating disorder, I guess, like program that the doctor you were working with, like when you were in school, Mm -hmm. what about it appealed to you exactly? Like was it, like when you say you had a personal history with eating disorders, um, what exactly do you mean by that? So
0: I had a lot of friends, um, almost all of my friends, when I think back in my early life, almost mm-hmm. all of my friends had an eating disorder, mm-hmm. and I kept kind of finding myself surrounded by people with eating disorders, and so when I was in school and I was assigned to eating disorder cases, I was, I was like, wow, I really, I understand this, I get this, um, and, and so after for me, once, once I realized that not only do I get this on a personal level, mm-hmm. but I have the professional training or the academic training to actually work in this field, I mm-hmm. felt like I kind of had a responsibility to do that. Eating disorder patients are so difficult to work with. They're so stigmatized. And Mm. even in the professional sphere, medical doctors want to avoid them. A lot of therapists want to avoid them. So to me, I'm like, okay, I have the skill set. I have the experience. I get Mm. it. I should probably do this. Yeah.
1: I mean, it's kind of full circle. So what do you consider a disordered eating?
0: Um, Okay. So it's a good question because disordered eating is on a huge spectrum. Right. on one side of the spectrum, you have anorexia, which mm-hmm. is the typical, when you think of an eating disorder in your head, that's usually what you see is this mm-hmm. underweight girl looking in a mirror who and she feels like she's bigger than she is. Mm. Um, there's also bulimia, which would be binging and purging, and then binge eating disorder, which is binging without purging. And that's the spectrum that you see most commonly called eating disorders, but outside of that, there's also people who maybe don't fall into that one of those categories really neatly, but definitely have uh, a difficult or unusual relationship with food mm-hmm. so that I would consider disordered eating um like give if,
1: give me an example of like a weird like a, I guess like a disordered relationship with food which doesn't fall into any of these categories
0: um so orthorexia would be one of them but that's actually been coined as a new eating disorder term mm-hmm. so that's someone who's obsessed with clean eating mm-hmm. um but also someone who's weird with eat- with eating is someone that engages in binging, purging, and restriction, mm-hmm. um, or might spend some of their some of their life being really restrictive, and then later in their life, binging and purging, mm-hmm. and, and so maybe at one time they fit the criteria for anorexia, and now they fit the criteria for bulimia, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know what you call that that person, I don't know if it really right. matters, um, so in real life, what I actually say is someone with an eating disorder is someone who is experiencing symptoms of binging, purging, and or restriction mm-hmm. um, to varying degrees at different times, it's changing it's changing over time. Um, basically, anyone with an intrusive relationship with food.
1: Okay, and what are some misconceptions that people have about eating disorders? I
0: think the major one is that everyone with an eating disorder has a desire to be really, really thin or really mm-hmm. skinny. Mm-hmm. And again, it's like that quintessential um, image that comes in everyone's mind of the girl in the mirror. Mm-hmm. And I would say in real life or in, in practice, I probably, probably five or 10% of my patients at max actually are in that position really yeah it's it's the majority of people with eating disorders you actually would never know and Mm. in fact you have them in your life they are people you work with they're in your family they're in your friend circle and you just you have no idea because it's not physically obvious so that that's a major misconception
1: so like aside from like say for example that part of your I guess clientele is only five to ten percent but are there like any like common triggers that you see in other people who um, do have eating disorders who, who don't fall into this category basically
0: triggers as in how they
1: like what leads them there like is there any like common theme that you see
0: yeah there are common themes it's, it's such an interesting question i feel like nobody really understands where eating disorders actually come from mm-hmm. i feel it's a combination of biology or genetics mm-hmm. mixed with uh, emotions and family life and the emotional climate of your home mixed with life circumstances happening in kind of an unfortunate sequence at, a, at, a, at the wrong time with the wrong coping strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when you put all those together, so the personality type, the family history and the life circumstances, sometimes it's a perfect storm and an eating disorder is the coping me- mechanism that somebody lands on kind of accidentally.
1: Do you, I mean, you may not be able to answer this, but just out of curiosity, like, is there a specific personality type that's more prone to eating disorders that you know? Like,
0: Yeah, so definitely within the specific eating disorder, so anorexia or orthorexia, you do tend to see a more perfectionistic personality type. There's um, more rigidity in the personality type. um, Like that type A type Mm -hmm. of personality Mm -hmm. probably Mm -hmm. is more likely to find themselves there. Uh, but having said that, someone with bulimia often has that personality type as well, but for some reason, uh, they, they fall into binging and purging instead of restriction. Mm-hmm. So that I guess that would be a universal personality type. And then another overarching commonality between everyone with an eating disorder is just on a baseline inability to handle difficult emotions, mm-hmm. probably because they haven't been taught from a young age. So. We just, in the community, we would say their distress tolerance is Mm. low. Mm.
1: And then that's why they, like, I guess, turn to food and, like, have that relationship. it becomes a coping
0: mechanism. Got
1: it. So how can you spot an eating disorder? Yeah, such an interesting question. Yeah.
0: I think, first of all, if it's not visually obvious, so if it's, like, the 90 to 95% of people that don't look like they have an eating disorder, it's hard. I think you have to be really in tune. I think you have to pay attention. It's little, little things. But... It will be people who, um, there's like an emotion around food for them. They're the person who, when you want to go out for dinner, they're kind of like, oh, where are we going? I need to see the menu. Um, they're the person who's making a lot of substitutions with their food. They they might be the type of person who's canceling a lot when it when meals are involved. You might notice them talking a lot about food or, or cooking a lot of food or baking a lot of food. Um, their life just it kind of revolves around food in a way that's slightly unusual mm-hmm. but it's not obvious because a it doesn't it doesn't look obvious they often are are doing normal things with food and b their body often looks normal too so there's not really an indication mm-hmm. um so it is it's subtle but it's just like that yeah kind of almost un, unnatural obsession with food
1: Is there like a difference, I guess, in like when you're speaking about someone, for example, who makes a lot of substitutions or, you know, likes to cook a ton at home, Mm -hmm. what is the difference between, I guess, like being healthy and then like going over onto that other end of the spectrum?
0: It's such a hard question because especially now it's such, it's such a time when everyone is health focused Mm. and the line between normal eating and disordered eating is so, is so blurry. It's blurred, yeah. Yeah. And I think there are more and more and more. People identifying with the word orthorexia, mm-hmm. which is honestly a newer word in, in the eating disorder community. But um, I think the person who's health conscious and making these decisions, it's coming from a place that really truly is honoring their health. It's not impacting the other areas of their life. For example, their social life is fine. Their relationships are fine. Their work is fine. Their sleep is fine. When it's crossed into disorder territory, it usually starts um, taking on the the health the obsession with healthy eating takes on more than just an obsession with healthy eating it's impacting other areas of their life that it, it shouldn't food should pretty pretty much be separate from relationships and friendships and work but mm. it starts to not be
1: got it and so since we're I guess on the topic of orthorexia I wanted to talk a little bit more about it because the thing is that orthorexia I feel like nowadays is so widespread and you know it's it's kind of dangerous because I feel like it's disguised as healthy when in fact it's gotten to a place where it's not right so like if someone does have orthorexia or like just listening to I guess like this description that you've given like they feel like okay like maybe I do have orthorexia like are there any steps that they can take to kind of like like get better I guess
0: uh, yeah, so I think it depends how far someone is on the spectrum. So as when you're asking me earlier about the types of eating disorders, I said there was a spectrum. There's also a spectrum of severity. Mm. So if you're I always say if you have a baby eating disorder, so it's still an eating disorder, mm-hmm. but it's it's not become malignant where it's woven itself around all of your 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 life and your body. Yeah. It's definitely easier to intervene and be like, ooh, I'm out of control mm-hmm. and I need to get the, get this under control fast." But if you're so far gone in the sense that it is now occupying all of your mental real estate all like all day, mm-hmm. the answer is it, it's a different answer for those people who are on those different ends of the spectrum.
1: Let's go with like the baby. Okay, baby eating disorder. I think
0: it would start, it would honestly being honest with yourself about how, how much of how much of your worry um, when you look at other people in your life, how does it compare? And if if you're noticing that you're like oh yeah I'm I'm worrying a little bit more um, I'm thinking about this more than I should I would say the easiest thing to do would be to get help from a professional because you really start to start to um, lose the ability to distinguish between your own rational thought about caring about your health and the disorder thoughts so you sometimes need an objective point of view to help tease that apart mm-hmm. and then I think another thing if, if you're you know if you're not in a position to to pay for the type of help you might need it might be real it might be important to start challenging yourself and. You know, if your if your head has told you dairy's not okay, gluten's not okay, sugar's not okay, fruit's not okay, like I don't know, cold water's not okay. <laughs> Honestly, it can it can get to that point. it 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 would be maybe starting to just see what happens when you start eating those things. Yeah. Yes, sure. If you're not used to eating dairy, your your tummy might hurt a bit. But what might hurt more than your tummy is your mind, mm-hmm. um, berating you. And so, you know, if you notice that that's happening and you can't override it and can't reintroduce these foods in a way that is manageable, then
1: I think being honest with yourself that you might need more help. So uh, I guess now that since we are talking about like getting help, talk to me about your practice.
0: So I work at a clinic downtown Toronto, right across from Union Station. It's mm-hmm. called Be Well. Mm-hmm. It is a psychological wellness clinic. And within Be Well, we have a, a satellite clinic called Eat Well. Um, and it's it's a team of a psychiatrist, uh, medical doctors, myself. I'm, I'm kind of the first step when someone comes to the clinic is to see me. And then we also have therapists um, and massage therapists, acupuncturists. We kind of have the whole the, the whole deal. So my practice, like I said, I'm the first step. So people would see me. We would together do an assessment to see where somebody's at and then refer out to the additional su- um, supports that we have in the clinic as
1: needed. So what does that first step look like? It looks like, so
0: usually patients, they reach out, they send an email, Um, Tell me a little bit or they tell the admin staff a little bit about where they're at. We book them an initial consultation with me, which is an hour long. They come in. We go through their eating disorder history in in, in its entirety. We do basic stuff like weight, BMI calculation. blood pressure heart rate because we do have criteria if we have someone who needs to be hospitalized then we are absolutely not the right place for them Mm -hmm. so we go through all of that history um and then we figure out a plan together so the one of the beauties of working in private practice is you get you don't you don't have to um like nobody tells you the rules you don't have a hospital telling you these are the guidelines um you get to basically do whatever you want with whatever with, with every patient so me and the patient together have an honest conversation about what they really need in order to move forward, mm-hmm. and, and we customize their plan based based on that. So some patients want to work with psychiatrists and they want medical ma- or, uh, medication management, other people don't. Mm-hmm. Some people really have a lot of therapeutic work they need and the food is kind of on the back burner. Some people need to deal with food first and then they need therapy. So everyone's experience is different and that's that's why we created Eat Well, so it could have both the medical side and the softer
1: side. So. What is the role of naturopathy in um, treating an eating disorder? Like specifically your role.
0: Yeah, my role. So what I do with my patients is I tend to do the food and body side. I'm I'm a bit of a liaison between the two sides. So I interpret a lot of blood work and I make sure the medical stability is there through the the work that the medical doctor is ordering. But my major role is actually with food. Mm -hmm. So normalizing food, regulating food. Um, refeeding, if that's necessary, interrupting binge purge symptoms, if that's necessary, just getting somebody back to a place where they're functioning in the world with food is up the bulk of what I do. Mm. And at the same time, connecting what's happening with food with what's happening in their in their mind. Um, so how how if someone's going out for a birthday dinner, walking them through all of the ways their mind is going to try to sabotage the experience or get in the way of them having a good time, and just and I'm walking through how they're going to get through the food experience mm. emotionally. Mm. Um, also, you know, they had a bad day at work. Their boss did something. They're upset with their boyfriend. And looking how, looking at the ways that um, that translates into food is a lot of what I do. So it's, it's different than therapy. It's, it's, it's almost like counseling for food mm. on top of regulating food is what I do. And then on the physical side, you know, patients with eating disorders, they do. They have difficulty with digestion. They have difficulty with their hormones. They have difficulty with sleep. Um, And I would give them alternatives to medication to help with those concerns that they're having.
1: Got it. And what is like the impact of eating disorders on hormones? Well, they
0: absolutely wreak havoc
1: on your hormones. Mm -hmm. So from a reproductive
0: standpoint, depending on your body weight, depending on the symptoms you have, sometimes you see bodies revert to pre-puberty where they no longer have, adult hormones happening so their ability to have a baby would be totally gone Mm. um and so after the person becomes stable a lot of the work is done to we almost go almost go through puberty a second time like rebalance female reproductive hormones Mm. um and and sometimes people won't lose their period altogether but it becomes really erratic it's not coming regularly so we do a lot of work around that and then on top of female reproductive hormones the stress hormones are majorly implicated so someone someone with an active eating disorder definitely is under a lot of stress both mm-hmm. physically and emotionally and cortisol is related in there um and then yeah we, and, and like you know even even the hormones that are involved in satiation are are affected so it's just like literally the entire endocrine system has to reorganize itself around an eating disorder and we have to just one step at a time
1: regulate those. So say someone's BMI has dropped to the point of like, they've, they've lost their period. Have Mm -hmm. you said like, is there anything that they can do? Like, I mean, I remember you mentioned refeeding. So like, what's that look like? For example,
0: yeah um so refeeding is something that has to be done very delicately it's actually very it's a it's a very dangerous medical process so mm-hmm. you cannot just go from a 500 calorie or 800 calorie 1000 calorie a day diet to a 2000 calorie a day diet mm-hmm. overnight that your body wouldn't know what to do What would happen Um you can you can go you can have something called refeeding syndrome mm-hmm. which is actually a medical emergency
1: Oh my gosh okay. Yeah
0: your body's just it, the body becomes adapted to whatever you're putting it through, so it will adapt to its restrictive diet, and when you put it back up to normal, it's not its not able to handle it. Right. So we do have to delicately introduce food um, mm-hmm. at a speed that's safe. Yeah. So, But, yeah, if somebody's BMI has dropped and they're underweight, we would refeed them safely mm-hmm. back up to their normal weight, and once they're at their normal weight, that's when we would see female reproductive hormones and all the other hormones starting to regulate themselves and if they don't that's when we would intervene to help
1: got it okay cool so if you suspect that someone you know has an eating disorder like is there a right way to approach it
0: you know what i don't know honestly from all the years i've done this and from all the friends i've had and my personal experience i I honestly don't know the answer i think i think you actually do need to say something because what's what always surprises all of my patients is how many people they think don't know about their eating disorder and I'm thinking, no, people know. People just have no idea how to bring it up. Mm-hmm. So I think that bringing it up from a very, very, very loving and compassionate place, saying, I'm concerned about you, I'm noticing these things, and I just I want you to know that I know. The hard thing as a support person is that until somebody's ready to get better, there's very, very little you can do. But by saying nothing, you're absolutely in- in enabling or endorsing some of their behaviors, Um You know, no one is going to respond well when someone is saying this to them. Mm -hmm. Usually people get pretty angry, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it.
1: Got it. Okay. So say someone is under eating. Um, Like, for example, if they're supposed to be eating like an 1800 calorie diet, but they decide to have 1000 calories because they think that that's a good way to lose weight. Um, Why? Why is that a bad idea?
0: This is like the diet culture. This is why there's like a billion-dollar industry in weight loss. Mm. Um, Okay, so there's a thing called the BMR, which is your basal basal metabolic rate, and Mm. it's how many calories your body burns on a day-to-day basis. And it is as long as you are feeding it regularly and moving at a you know consistently, so the same amount of exercise all the time or the same amount of no exercise all the time, Mm. your body is pretty happy hanging out at its baseline rate. Once you drastically reduce your calories, you'll often have rapid weight loss because your body is used to burning whatever amount of calories mm-hmm. a day it's burning, say 1,800 in your example, and suddenly you're feeding it 1,000. Every day there's a deficiency, you're going to lose weight. But after a little bit of time, your body says, okay, you know what? looks like we're going through a bit of a famine. Um, we're going to slow everything down. So your BMR, or your basal metabolic rate, will actually slow down to compensate for the fact that you're feeding it less. Mm-hmm. And now what you've done... Is take your your BMR from eighteen hundred down to a thousand calories a day, and so the weight loss you were experiencing will plateau. And next, thing you know, the person has to cut their calories again in half in order to have results. And this is this is why diets don't work; they mm-hmm. are completely unsustainable. And then the trouble happens is, you know, you get down to a thousand calories a day, and you're like, okay, I cannot eat like this anymore, and you, I don't know, lose lose the willpower or lose the discipline or something if you're on a diet and then you have one cheat meal and next thing you know you've gained all this weight like literally in one meal and it's because your body is now rapidly storing um extra calories because it's used to only a thousand calories a day.
1: That's nuts. It
0: is nuts. And it and it's so confusing for patients and they start they start saying things like, I swear I gained weight from one meal and I'm like, Mm -hmm. You're not wrong. Like you kind of do. And I'm talking about diet patients. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit different for eating disorders but you know, it's confusing, but it, but then they get trapped because, you know, um, fast results are enticing.
1: So like, what is a healthy way to lose weight?
0: It would be to, it would be slow, way, way, way slower than you would want. Mm-hmm. It, it would be at a rate of like one to max two pounds a week. Mm-hmm. And so it would be eating just below your BMR. So if you are if you're burning, in your, like in your example, 1,800 calories a day, it would be eating like 1,600 calories a day mm. or 1,700 calories a day. So that is the difference between having like two hot days a day or one. It's like we're not talking major dieting. Or it's the difference between having cream in your coffee to switching to having milk in your coffee. It's, mm. it's these ty- these kinds of tiny, tiny modifications that actually – add up, um, and don't impact your metabolism in the process.
1: Do you see patients who over-exercise? Like, does that, I guess, fall into? Yeah, it
0: does. So you see that a lot in anorexia. You see it also in orthorexia. But sometimes that is the only symptom, is over-exercise. And, yeah, that's just as damaging for your body. Um, One, because if you're not refueling in a way to compensate for the exercise. And two, it's hard on your body. You're not necessarily meant to do... Whatever is trendy right now, high intensity interval
1: training, Mm -hmm. seven days a week, like your body's just, it needs a break. Yeah, yeah, totally. And like, I've, I've heard it can mess with your hormones as well. Oh,
0: absolutely. You start, you start having, um, elevated testosterone. And, and the other thing is it crosses into a disordered territory and how in the way it presents in the same way that orthorexia would, where your ideas around what it would mean to not exercise become emotional. Mm. And it's like a compulsion to exercise, not, it's no longer coming from health
1: so if someone is prone to over exercising like what is the treatment process for them for example
0: um very similar to uh what you would do with orthorexia or another eating disorder it would be slowly tapering off of exercise and actually having to sit with the how uncomfortable that feels so of course exercise is is important but it's um it's you might have to go through a period of time of not exercising and actually just dealing with what comes up for you emotionally mm-hmm. so that you can process that, resolve that, and then re-engage with exercise in a healthy way.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, this has been really really informative like I learned so much about eating sores nuts um yeah and yeah okay so before we wrap tell everyone where they can find you um
0: so you can find our program online it's www.eatwellto.ca and then on instagram it's eat underscore well to
1: amazing thank you so much Natalie. thank you wait do you want to receive a short email with exclusive content from me every week sign up to the icing and glitter newsletter and I'll send you my top five skincare tips along with a weekly email with bite-sized tips and tricks giveaways recipes and lots of other fun content stuff is exclusive to my newsletter subscribers and I can't wait to see you guys on there I'm gonna leave the link in the show notes so you guys can sign up